0: Welcome to the Recent Speeches Podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Good morning. I feel so grateful and honored to be here with you today. I'd like to share some of what I've learned from voices expressing words of wonder, wisdom, and deeply felt truths. What these voices have in common is that they come from people in remote places who share a deep concern for nurturing. One of these places, a village in Amazonian Ecuador, is physically remote because its isolation from cities and towns makes it very inconvenient to travel to. Another kind of place is experientially remote, although not so very far from us geographically. I'm referring to the worlds of two different state prison systems, the Utah State Prison and the San Quentin State Prison in California. Let me begin with Amazonian Ecuador. A number of years ago, I was in graduate school working toward a degree in linguistics, Just in case some of you aren't familiar with this field of study, let me first tell you a bit about what linguistics is not. Many people assume that a linguist is someone who speaks lots of different languages. Permit me to share a cartoon which whimsically contests this assumption. It comes from a satirical publication specializing in linguistic humor. Another misconception about linguists is that we are language police who monitor people to detect how correctly they're speaking. This isn't what we do either, although we definitely take an interest in why people consider some ways of speaking more correct than others. I would characterize linguistics as the scientific and humanistic study of language in all of its possible dimensions. But there are as many ways of being a linguist as there are people who call themselves linguists. My own approach is called anthropological linguistics, which focuses on some of the unique ways in which languages and cultures are interconnected. To pursue this approach, I conducted research in a remote community in Amazonian Ecuador called Pucayacu, which means red water. This small settlement is home for speakers of a language called Quichua. My goal was to learn this language well enough to write a dissertation about some aspects of its structure. I was also interested in how people's ways of speaking might reflect assumptions about the world, which were different from my own. What I didn't plan for were the challenges of living in a place so utterly different from anything I'd ever experienced. There were no roads leading to Pukuyaku, no hotels, no grocery stores, and absolutely no running water or bathrooms. And there are still no roads leading to Pukuyaku, as I discovered last summer when I returned in this canoe Uh, to reconnect with people. From the day I set foot in this community, I was struck by the stunning rainforest setting, as biodiverse and complex as any place on Earth can be. Despite the inspiring natural surroundings, it was easy to feel discouraged about my struggles with the language, as well as with just trying to exist in this unfamiliar world. There were days when I could do absolutely nothing but lie in a hammock, and stare into space at my beautiful surroundings, wondering what on earth I was doing there. And that this is the house that I stayed in with my friends Fabiola and Irma, um, and the hammock was strung across those support poles. Although the people I was living among did manage to enjoy my company at times, I was acutely aware of my limitations. Even the simplest task, like trying to help weed a garden with a machete, resulted in blisters all over my hands. I was always worried about my impositions into people's lives, although I helped in whatever ways I could, especially with requests for things that were not readily available, like fish hooks and canned tuna. Fortunately for me, the members of this community are among the most congenial people I have ever met. They love to laugh. I know this because my inability to do the simplest things was often what they laughed about. (laughs) I found it challenging, for example, to stay clean while walking through the muddy jungle. I would often arrive at someone's home with reddish mud splattered all over my boots and jeans. At times, I actually enjoyed sloshing right through puddles. My friends would laugh and say that I was acting like a wild forest pig. They they kept themselves as clean as possible, always wiping off whatever mud they had on their feet and legs before even approaching someone's house. This ability to stay clean amidst the muddy surroundings was just one of the many things that gave me reasons to wonder, and this wonder often helped me step out of my low points and get back to work. There were many aspects of Kichwa people's abilities that inspired my curiosity. Although most of my friends have never had opportunities for formal education, their knowledge of their surroundings is comprehensive. You might even say that they practice their own form of literacy involving reading the landscape with a curriculum based on observing animals, plants, and insects. What has always struck me about their astonishingly detailed knowledge of their rainforest home is the way in which this knowledge is expressed. Kichwa speakers are not afraid to stand all amazed. A common stance is to express a feeling of wonder about what is known. To illustrate, my student Anna Nygaard and I were recently interviewing a Quechua speaker named Belhica over Zoom. We were asking her about how various animal species take care of their young. Our friend related with vivid language and gestures how a type of fish mother will keep her babies safe from predators by allowing them to enter her own mouth so that she can protect them as she swims. This amazing account was summarized by our friend in the following translated words. She darts across the water over to one side, taking her babies with her in her mouth. And if there are no other fish there when she arrives, she opens her mouth widely, and all the babies swim out. Then, if even only one fish comes near her babies, she'll attack it. And after chasing it away, opening her mouth widely again, all the babies go safely back inside. My friend then exclaimed with wondrous admiration and surprise in Quechua which I translate as, look, even fish are such possessors of awareness. She then said that these kinds of fish might even be better at mothering than some humans. I've always enjoyed such detailed and vivid descriptions from my quechua speaking friends. This particular description included expressive gestures imitating the fish mother's lightning-fast darting movements across the water. My friend also opened her mouth widely to show how the fish mother would invite her babies into her protective space. It wasn't until recently, though, that I came to see such descriptions as having spiritual significance, and this realization was inspired by listening to an interview with the anthropologist and linguist Mary Catherine Bateson. In a podcast called On Being, she tells Krista Tippett, that the starting place for any kind of religious sentiment is a sense of wonder, because wonder leads to praise. To support her claim for the importance of wonder, she cites Old Testament Job, characterizing him as, and I quote, a virtuous member of an institution. He's respectable, obeys all the rules. He's complacent. He goes through the appropriate rituals that were required in his community at that time, but he's lost his sense of wonder. I may be going out on a limb here, but I think Old Testament Jehovah would not need to remind my friends in Pukayaku very often of the following words he used while challenging Job with so many questions about the intricacies of the natural world. We read in Job 37:14, Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. My Ketra-speaking friends use language that seems designed to emphasize the wonder and awe of their surroundings. They love to capture the finest details of sensory experience, which they imitate with vivid onomatopoeic words, expressive intonation, and lots of gestures. Bateson's insights have also helped me understand why the following passages from 3 Nephi 16 and 17 have always moved me. And after this manner do they bear record, The eye hath never seen, neither hath the ear heard before, so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. And no tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of men conceive so great and marvelous things as we both saw and heard Jesus speak. And no one can conceive of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard Him pray for us unto the Father." Although these passages seem to be mostly about the greatness and the marvelous qualities of Jesus' prayer, I think they are also emphasizing the unfathomability of trying to capture how the people were affected by it. In other words, these passages emphasize their feelings of awe, reverence, and wonder at hearing his words. Although the people of Pukuyaku live within a culture that hasn't benefited from formal education or literacy, They have inspired me with their abilities to read the landscapes of God's created world. Their careful attention to and enjoyment of the awe-inspiring wonders surrounding them have refreshed my spirit over and over again. Let me turn now to another group of people who have also inspired me, people in a different kind of remote place, which is the world of incarceration. When the pandemic forced us into isolations and lockdowns during the summer of 2020, it also dashed my plans to go back to Pukiyaku. I hadn't been able to return since my dissertation research days, and I was anxious to reconnect with people. The pandemic also interfered with one of my students, Chloe Rampton's, plans to travel to Russia to do research for her MA thesis. As Chloe and I discussed possibilities for a new project, I couldn't help thinking about one group of people who, even before the pandemic, were already living very restricted lives, with no access to many of the privileges that we all take for granted. How, I wonder, do they cope? How do they make their lives meaningful and satisfying under such difficult conditions? I had heard about the Utah Prison Education Program, or UPEP for short, based at the University of Utah. This program offers college-level instruction to incarcerated men and women at the Utah State Prison. And Chloe had, at one time, expressed an interest in prison jargon. So we thought of a project that would involve both volunteering to teach a linguistics class at the prison while using online resources to study metaphors used for prison experiences. Although Chloe could have simply used online resources for her thesis, it was important for us to also experience the conditions and situations of people living in this world, which is unfamiliar to many of us, but which affects so many people in the United States. Shockingly, one out of every 10 adults in our country is an incarcerated person. Depending on the sources one consults, the United States has one of the highest, if not the highest rates of incarceration in the world. Immersing oneself in the worlds of the people whose languages we study is called participant observation, and it's a hallmark method for anthropological linguistics and, linguist- and anthropology generally. So we traveled to the Utah State Prison during the fall semester of 2020 and the winter of 2021 almost every Friday afternoon to teach our classes. We mainly worked with six students. One woman was married with young children and struggled to be a parent and a spouse with only limited possibilities for communicating during the pandemic. One day, I realized that if I had suddenly been struck with short-term amnesia while facing this class of students without any memory of the razor wire and the many checkpoints we had to pass through to get to our classroom, it wouldn't have been at all obvious that these students were any different from my regular students here at BYU. Their comments and observations about language were incisive. Two students in particular had graduate student-like perspectives about the research articles we read. Another student in the prison, I'll call her Mia, stood out because of a story she told us during class one day. Mia had been involved in an animal training program at the prison and loved animals of all kinds. Her story was about rescuing a baby goose. For some reason, geese are everywhere on the grounds of the Utah State Prison. One day when she was outside with a group of women, they all noticed a baby goose that had become caught in the razor wire surrounding the yard. Prison being what it is, they had to ask the correctional officer supervising them for permission to approach it and try to help it get free. The officer said no. After a while, though, there was a changing of the guard and a new officer came to supervise. Mia again tried to get permission to help the baby goose still entangled and still struggling. This officer said, "Okay," and they helped set it free. This story reveals two qualities that really amazed me about Mia. First of all, she had the wisdom to hold on to her compassion and her empathy by allowing herself to feel for this baby bird. And second, she kept her sense of hope alive. After the first officer said no, she tried again. How, I wonder, did she hold on to her compassion in such a setting? Being able to teach students at the Utah State Prison and having opportunities to learn from their perspectives was a privilege I will never forget. It made the pandemic restrictions feel so much less oppressive when I realized how much freedom I actually have, relatively speaking. This realization was also driven home by learning from the online resources used by Chloe to gather data for her thesis. She discovered a podcast originating from the San Quentin State Prison in California called Ear Hustle. This podcast has won several awards and has even been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for audio reporting. It's hosted by people incarcerated in the prison as well as by a volunteer from the outside. Now, in its ninth season, its episodes feature narratives from individuals about all kinds of subjects, including some extremely difficult topics. I listened to these narratives because Chloe was gleaning examples of them for her thesis. In the process of familiarizing myself with her data, my heart was deeply touched by so many of the people featured on this amazing podcast. I'd like to share some words from two individuals whose perspectives particularly affected me. They reveal wisdom and truth, some of it as profound as the beautiful knowledge from our sacred texts and great literature. I'll let the first individual introduce himself.
1: My name is Renell Draper, but I go by Roach. My relationship with people is pretty strained. I don't trust them. From early on, they they have been a source of pain for me.
0: Because of the extraordinarily difficult circumstances of his upbringing, Mr. Draper has cultivated a meaningful life within prison by nurturing, or as they call it in San Quentin, looking out for other forms of life. Here is how he describes what that's like.
1: I love animals, oh yeah. Since I've been in prison, I've had black widows, tarantulas, a lot of grasshoppers, beetles. At San Quentin, inmates aren't allowed to have pets, but some guys get creative, like Roach here. Gophers, rabbits, I had four swallows, a toad, praying mantis, 21 snails, frog, a red-breasted finch whose arm broke. Pigeons, I had a desert mole that was partially paralyzed. Tate hamster, just really lazy with an attitude. A centipede, and it was a wolf. It was a bad little monster. I had two fish that had babies twice. I had a tarantula broke out one time. My celly said, yo, spider got out.
0: What can we learn from Mr. Draper, who might be considered a kind of St. Francis of San Quentin? Here is what he says about why he does what he does.
1: I take care of animals because they teach me what I can't learn from people. It's unconditional affection or appreciation. Unconditional love is here.
0: Mr. Draper's ability to learn about and feel unconditional love is so moving to me because it attests to the beautiful possibilities for the human spirit. He has figured out how to experience what he never felt from his family, but which every child is entitled to feel. Jesus Christ himself experienced the unconditional love of his Father. Right after he is baptized and before he even begins his public life performing miracles, his Father praises him, proclaiming that he is his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased. Let's consider another individual at San Quentin, Mr. Richard Lathan, a man who wears a special gold coat. This coat signals to inmates his special role as a caretaker of the seriously sick and dying people at San Quentin. Specifically, he cleans people up. Whatever messy dysfunctions are affecting their bodies, he takes care of. Here is how he describes his role and also his response to the question of why he does what he does.
2: My name is Richard Lathan.
0: Richard Lathan's a former gang member who's serving a 15-year-to-life sentence for murder.
2: And the job I do is taking care of people. You know, Nigel,
1: I asked Richard why he spends his time oh. taking care of the sick and the elderly because it can't be an easy job.
0: Oh, man, No.
2: Why do you take that stance? Because I was a gang member, so now this is my chance of giving back, so this is how I do it. I figure if I give back to life, then my life will be given back to me. 26 years ago, I did take someone inside life, and I'm uh, w- with two attempted murders <laughs> in the process. I was young then, 21 years old then, you know, I'm turning 49 in January. I don't have the same outlook no more. I don't have the same ideologies. I don't have the same uh, values, instill street values, no. Don't abide by that. Anymore. You know what I'm saying?
1: Richard's not getting any younger himself, and he's had his own health problems.
2: I didn't had a seizure a couple weeks ago, and the only thing I can think about is taking care of the fellas. It's the only thing I can think about.
0: When I hear Mr. Lathan talk about his changed outlook, his new self, I can't help thinking of the words spoken by Shakespeare's older brother Oliver, who had once plotted to help end his younger brother Orlando's life, in the play "As You Like It." After his change of heart, Oliver affirms who he now is, saying, "Twas I, but tis not I." When I hear Mr. Lathan say that the only thing he could think about was taking care of his fellas, even after his own seizure. I'm reminded of Christ's words in Matthew 16.25, For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In case you're wondering what all of this is leading to, let me retrace our steps. I've been talking about my friends in Amazonian Ecuador who have inspired me by their alertness to the wonders around them. My friend's wonder about fish mothers is not that different from my own wonder about Mia's protective stance toward a baby goose or about Mr. Draper's nurturing of all forms of life. The podcast hosts of Ear Hustle also expressed amazement and wonder at Mr. Latham's dedication to serving the sick and the dying in the most selfless way possible. Here's what I'd like to offer. As members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, We have unlimited access to wisdom, truth, and blessings from our scriptures, our ordinances, and our covenants. Perhaps we should add at least a daily dose of wonder to our spiritual practices. This is what I've learned from Elder Ulysses Suarez's recent General Conference address. He urged us to focus on the importance of cultivating feelings of wonder for the gospel and for Jesus Christ. He tells about the contagious feelings of awe he enjoyed when listening to a friend tell about what it was like visiting the Holy Land and knowing he was walking where Jesus once walked. Elder Suarez states that when we live the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are protected against complacency and spiritual apathy. There is also scientific support for the benefits of giving more space for awe and wonder in our lives— A recent review article by Chen and Mongren called Awe and the Interconnected Self surveys a variety of studies which report that allowing oneself to experience awe leads to an increased sense of one's connections with others and with one's surroundings. Such experiences can also lessen stress, reduce the kind of self-critical thinking which leads to depression, and inspire greater humility, greater generosity, and more tolerance for uncertainty. Elder Suarez's point about the contagiousness of awe and research about the power of awe to alleviate uncertainty were brought home to me just this summer when I took 14 BYU students to Ecuador for a six-week study abroad to study the Quechua language. Two days after we arrived, a national strike was declared throughout the country, and it lasted for 18 days. This meant that many roads were blocked by protesters, so critical goods such as gas, food, and bottled water could not move freely. Although we always had food to eat, we saw a gradual decrease in fresh fruits and vegetables. And we had to take cold showers. My students were not able to go on short weekend trips to see other parts of Ecuador. In the final days of the strike, we were drinking boiled rainwater, and the gracious, hardworking people in charge of feeding us Ended up having to chop wood to make fires to cook our food. All of this caused some anxiety for me as a director looking out for my students. When we were almost two weeks into the strike, I questioned each student individually about how they were doing. Although everybody said they were fine, what really helped me with my anxieties about their well being was the way they often expressed their wonder at our surroundings. I've been to Ecuador so many times that I'd forgotten how fascinating leafcutter ants are. Several students were captivated by the long columns of relentlessly marching ants. They spent time observing them in action and even noticing how some seemed to be altruistically helping others. One day, a student announced excitedly at lunch that she'd found their nest after following their trail for some distance. This discovery led to questions for our Quechua teacher, about why their nests were built so far away from their food source, and other interesting queries about people and their food sources coming from distant places. My students' wonder at the mysteries of leafcutter ants and many other inhabitants of the rainforest was contagious. I was frequently drawn into their awe, and my anxiety about their well-being subsided somewhat, and I took a break from my anxiety. Although I was in principle taking care of them, they were also, without realizing it, taking care of me. I feel so privileged to be an anthropological linguist because my research on language provides me with so many opportunities to connect with people whose experiences seem quite different from my own. I have tried to communicate my own excitement for this gospel by pointing out the importance of wonder, but also by expressing the wonder I feel when I realize that no matter how remote the circumstances The values we share can be found whether we call it taking care of, looking out for, nurturing, or ministering to others. I leave you with my testimony that Jesus Christ's gospel is for all of us. And I say this most humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the Prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.